he, he spends his life um, searching for his wife. The, the play begins with an ordeal that is truly amazing. And on a, a ship passage home, he, uh, the ship is thrown over, almost swamped with a storm, and he thinks he loses his wife. He spends his life visiting these regimes, and in, in one sense, it, it's, it's, interesting. it's interesting. We've been talking about the city for a long time now. He has to learn how to experience a number of regimes because of the disorders that, that he has to come to terms with. Um, and then something happens in, at the end, that, and I can't tell you because I don't like giving things away, but Pericles is an extraordinary play. At the end of that play, something happens to bring Pericles to a moment where he hears the music of the spheres, and for the first time in his long life, he rests. I mean, there's this, it's an experience of beatitude, close to beatitude. Um, Winter's Tale, it belongs to that same kind of category. Something happens at the end that's just extraordinary. In the play that we watch, it, it's not set in um, time costumes. They, they, the costumes are very bare, and the settings are almost geometric. So, in some sense, they, they can, you know, they can bother you because you expect a realistic world in Shakespeare. But in, in another way, th there's something beautiful about it because it, it, it forces our attention completely on the characters. T the, the stage sort of takes takes that away and draws our focus there. Anyway, it's the most powerful experience I know of in all of literature of, of forgiveness. So it really does belong with you know, our work in catechism. The, the women are extraordinary. Something happens with one of the women, Paulina. Hermione, the, the king and queen at the center of the play are Leontes, the king of Sicilia, and his wife, Hermione. I won't tell you what happens, but something happens that's really dark. Um, Paulina is um, Hermione's um, handmaid. And the, what happens to, to everything that she loves is extraordinary. Um, she loses everything because of what Leontes does as a king. Um, and what she does with that is unlike anything I've ever seen any character in all, not Dostoevsky, Jane Austen doesn't come close to it, and I love her. Um, Dante doesn't come close to it. So I'm looking forward to it. Anyway, we're going to have that, that play. We're going to have a potluck on the 8th of January. Originally, I talked with Rosie, and she said, Father doesn't like letting any activities go on during Mass, but I talked with him today. And I'm going to ask everybody to come between 4.30 and 5 and set up the meals so we can get going. While we're eating, I'm going to give just a half-hour talk. I want to set some things out for you to be aware of when we watch the movie. And then I'll be quiet, we'll watch the movie, and then the following week we'll meet and we'll have a class and we'll go over things. So you will have experienced the movie in a way that you haven't with anything we've read. It's a three-hour movie. Three-hour movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What time? Um, 4.35. Okay. I'm, I'm planning to start the movie. If, if we get there and set up and the people start eating at 5 and I can give that talk, we should be able to start the movie at around 5.30. So that 8.30 concludes the evening. So I'm trying to do something so it's not a late night. And I, I'm assuming we're going to open it up to the parish. And I'm hoping that other people will come because they, 
they won't have had the background that you guys have had, but it's an overpowering movie, and I'm just I'm hoping that will help catechetically that that what they see will make everybody, all of us, ask ourselves what forgiveness really means for us, whether we really live this, you know. So it's a profound, profound movie. Anyway, that's what we're doing. Okay, so um, so. No class next Monday night, um, no, no class this Friday, a class a week from Friday. And then, um, and then, and here's one of the, so, and then the, uh, we'll take, we'll take three weeks for Hamlet. I'm gonna just touch on something in Hamlet tonight. Um, we'll take three weeks, that will take us two weeks before Christmas. I think it's the third weekend. We'll take the first three weeks of December on Hamlet and finish Hamlet. So before we take a break for Christmas, we will have finished three of the plays. We only have that one more play to go, Winter's Tale. And we'll do that when we come back. So we'll have that break, whatever it is, a couple of weeks. And here's, so we'll take, and then we'll just take one class after the film, because I think we can, since you've seen the film, you'll have a better feel for it and the, the kinds of questions that I will have will think we can handle pretty simply. After that our, our plan was to start Moby Dick. Suzanne has been urging me to um, to do some short stories and I don't want to decide this tonight but let me tell you our intention was to do Moby Dick. <coughs> um, I don't we we haven't had time to talk about this I don't want to go into it my assumption is that most of you have found that Shakespeare's not easy, but none of the works we've read has been particularly easy. Um, um, her suggestion was it might be good to do a couple of short stories just to sort of lighten. There's, I've got eight on my mind. Um, a Flannery O'Connor who's a Catholic writer um, who deals with what we call grotesque comedy. Um, there's a couple of short stories of Hemingway that show the dark side of our modern world that I think would be really worth looking at. There's a story by um, Catherine Ann Porter called Flowering Judas, which is one of the most powerful stories I've ever read. It's about a betrayal. She was Catholic. Um, and a couple of stories by Eudora Welty. So they're very short, they're not long. Um, my concern is this will extend our time It'll push it back a month anyway before we start Moby Dick. So it'll push the whole end of the reading off. So can you all think about this? And next time we meet, I'll bring it up and, and I'd like to hear what your thoughts are. Because don't you understand we don't ever want the class to end? <laughs> 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 yeah. God. <laughs> No pressure, no pressure. No, no Okay. I'm still going to ask you guys. <laughs> Thanks for that, Marty. Um, anyway, so next time we meet, I'll put it up to you and hear what you guys think. Okay? So is next Friday's class the same as tonight? Right. Okay. Yeah, because we're, we're I'm trying to keep it on schedule. So we won't meet this Friday because it's the day after Thanksgiving. The following Friday we will meet and I'll pick up in that class what we're doing here. And I can tell you, by the way, the classes are never, ever, ever the same. Even though I'm trying to cover the same material, it never comes out the same, any close. 
you, you could hear them and wonder if we're dealing with the same material. <laughs> it's, it's true. Um, what, what did that, um, what did that, it just called something to mind. Is the class the same? Oh, um, I talked with Danielle who's put the audio online and we've finally cleaned it up. And it's, it's really well done now. So if you go onto the church website and on the front page, the opening page of the home page, down below you'll see these four, four, five, or six blocks, pictures. One of them says, watch and listen. If you click on that, you go into the list of um, audio things. It gives you options of programs the, the, the church is offering. One of them is Lit as Prophecy. If you go into that, you'll see very clearly Homer, the early the Odyssey, Dante, or I mean Virgil, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, Inferno, Purgatory, Shakespeare, Merchant of Venice. So you can just click on all of that. It's in historical order now, so you can go in, you can go back to the beginning, you can go forward, you can move around. It's all available, and, and, it's, and it's easy to get to. The other way is you can go into the adult catechesis and click on adult catechesis and go through the adult catechesis page. But the simple way to, to do it is to go into watch and listen, go to Lydda's prophecy and you're in. And then you've got the options um, very clearly in front of you, so. When you go in um, and you click on a play, if that's what you want to catch up on, um, be patient. You know, click on oh, it, go get yeah. yourself a cup of coffee, come back, because <laughs> it takes a minute for the audio to actually download it. It does, it's not a okay. instantaneous thing. Good to know. Yeah. Good. It may or may not do that, but sometimes there's, sometimes there, there is a problem and you wonder if everything's working. It is, it's linked to whatever provider this program and they've got so much stored on it that sometimes it takes a minute to access, so if you just be patient. It may come right up, it, but it may not. If it doesn't, it, it will. It just takes oh, I have a calendar question. Maybe I misunderstood, but I want to be sure. The second, which is next, next week, Friday, week from this Friday, is this class, is the mirror of this class. That leaves us the 9th, the 16th, and the 23rd. No. Did you say we were going to meet three? Well, I thought we were. Counting, yeah. He's counting tonight as beginning. As the beginning. Day. Okay, so we'll right. be done the 16th. Okay. <laughs> Because I thought if we were going the 23rd, then we're back in the same... Yeah. yeah. No. No. No, I wanted to avoid that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's... Tonight, I want to um, make good on a promise that I've made. I kept saying we we're going to do this tonight. Do you all have the poetry? Can you get the, do you have one, Doc? I, do you all have the poetry sheet with, with the scansion? Yes. Yeah. Anybody need it? Everybody got it? We are on the ball. We are on the ball. Oh, yeah. We are. There's only one person not on the ball in this group. Okay. Very, very quickly. I've got to do this quickly because this is not a literature class, but I want, you to, I want you to see this. There are two basic rhythms to English poetry. 
the rhythm of our beginnings in, in Old English poetry, Beowulf and Old English, that's before Chaucer in Middle English. So Old English, if you heard it, would be so Germanic, so Anglican, Anglo, that you couldn't recognize it. You, you might pick up a word here and there that's familiar, but for the most part, you wouldn't have a clue. It undergoes lots of changes with the Anglo, with the French invasion, what was that, in the 1050? I can't remember when it was, but a French influence comes in to the English, and um, one of the ways to describe English poetry up to that time was a plain style. Very simple, very simple. That plain style defined English literature up until the Renaissance. Very simple, very plain. This is really important to know. And um, the basic rhythm of that poetry is called alliterative verse. I've got, I've got a sheet, a, a Scanson sheet, that I used in my classes because I wanted kids to know this. I'm not going to bring it up here because it's far too complicated because it goes through all the verse forms and the, 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 the kinds are amazing actually. So if anybody wants it, Marcy? Yes. If anybody wants it, write me, in, write me a note and let me know and I'll send you a copy. And I mean that for anybody. If, if you all want it all, it's pretty, um, it's pretty complex. I mean, you'll, you'll begin to realize just how fine an ear poets have in what they're doing with music. But I didn't, want, I didn't want to inflict that on you here. I just want to try to simplify this as much as I can. The verse form of old Anglo-Saxon poetry is called alliterative verse. Alliterative verse. And it's basically divided into two halves with two stresses on each half. So there are four strong stresses. You all know what alliteration is? Alliteration means um, a heavy pronunciation on uh, the words that alliterate, that, that have a strong consonant sound usually. So, the, so the, the stress is on alliterated sounds, repeated sounds. And the rule was in old English verse, alliterative verse, was that three, three of those stresses had to match. And usually it was these two and this one. What do you mean by match? Same sound, the, the same sound repeated and taking an accent. You'll, uh, you'll come, we're going to do it in a second. So there were, f now this is the important thing. In alliterative verse, even though there was only four feet, right, with four stresses, here, 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 yeah? Any one of those feet, the four feet, this one, this one, this one, this one, you can, you can divide it like this if you want. Here's one, here's two, here's three, here's four. There's four feet with four stresses. There was one strong stress, but there could be an indefinite number of unstressed syllables. So you could have eight syllables here with one stress. You could have two here. What that did was give a great flexibility to the line. Does that fall clear? Well, hold on, now look, I just want you to follow this for a minute. When the French influence came in, it introduced a syllabic verse. Syllable. Not alliterative, not, not, a, not a mode of alliteration, repeated sounds, consonant. It's um, a number of syllables per line. That was the French influence. So typically in an English verse after the, after the French invasion was that you would have four, five feet, 
of ions with a stress, an unstressed stress, unstressed stress, unstressed stress, unstressed stress, right? Ten syllables per line. Now think about how tight, how much, how much that tightens the form. This one is very elastic. You can have an indefinite numbers on each foot. This one is far less flexible. So there's a lot that would not get in this form unless it's a genius like Shakespeare or even meet Chaucer. Is that clear? Yes. So, and when you get to, to Hopkins, whose poems we've read, The Wind Hover, Hopkins is the first poet after Shakespeare who realized that after Shakespeare, the English language dies. Nobody can do what Shakespeare did afterwards, really. The English language is gone in poetry. What he did was go back to Anglo-Saxon verse and combine the two. So if you look at Hopkins' lines, you'll find lines where there are five feet, but there will be some of these feet that have indefinite numbers of syllables. So there's a much greater um, flexibility to Hopkins' line, and because it's alliterative, a much stronger stress. It's almost like that old, and by the way, listen to it, old, old, old English was almost like a verse off the Viking ships. Boom, 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 boom. Just a heavy beat, with, because it's alliterated, hard, hard to miss. The, uh, the syllabic line is much subtler, much finer. It lends itself to a, it's not as flexible, but it lends itself to a subtleness. Now, the basic feet in, in English is our iambic, unstressed stress, trochaic, stress, unstress, anapestic, unstress, unstress, stress, or trochaic, stress, unstress, unstress. Two syllables, two syllables, three syllables, three syllables. There are elaborations on this. For those of you who want to look at it, I'll send it to you. But for our purposes, you don't, you don't need to look at it. Here, I just want to read a couple of these now and make these clings clear. So this is from Beowulf. So it's an old English epic poem, very small, very short compared to the ones we've read. And this, by the, this is a translation. It's an English translation. It's not the old English because the old English we couldn't. It's a diff, very difficult language. It's, unless you knew old English, you wouldn't understand it. Lo, we have listened to many a lay. There it is. Lo, listen, lay, and the third foot. A variation. Okay. Of the Spear Danes' fame and martial deeds, from a friendless founding, feeble and wretched. Can you hear that? Hey, boom, boom, boom. It's, you almost can't miss it. It's so heavy. Um, this is um, from um, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, which is closer to um, Chaucer's time. So it's much subtler. It has a little bit of that alliterative beat but you can hear the French influence, the syllabic. The lines are much quieter than the old epic. This king lay at Camelot upon Christmas. See how it stretches out? You, it's, much, um, it's much more fluid, not as heavy. So you can see the syllabic influence coming into our, our sense of music, what we hear. This king lay at Camelot upon Christmas with money, lufflicher, lord, ladies of the besta, Reckonly of Ron table, all the rich brother, with rich a revel, a rich and reckless mirth. You can hear that. I mean, that wasn't done very well, but so you can hear that um, alliterative. 
Is everybody clear now on what alliterative verse is in our beginnings? Now, I, what I did was just randomly take some lines because I wanted you to see it's no accident. When you read Shakespeare, most people don't even know it's put to music. This is the opening of Merchant of Venice. In sooth, I know not why I am so sad. Ten syllables. It couldn't be more regular. Right? Now, here's the thing I want, I want everybody to hear. You never read it. Da, 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 you know? In, in sooth, I know not why I am so sad. There are those stresses. You never read poetry like that. You read it rhetorically because what you, what you begin to be aware of is there's a counterpoint. There's a strict, like music, when you've got a four beat music, you've got a, a, a set established uh, meter, metrical pattern, but every line is a variation on it. The quality of the word, the, the duration of it, the color of it, all those plays so that every line is very different from every, every other, even though it's set to the same meter. In sooth, I know not why I'm so sad. It wearies me, you say, it wearies you. But how I caught it, found it, or came by it, what stuff tis made of, wherever it's born, I am to learn. How many people would ever read that if they'd not known this and realized that was put to music? Right? But it is. Because remember, remember what I've been saying. There is a musical element that the rational mind almost ruthlessly reads out of it. Like it's not there. Poetry has a musical element. It's supposed to help quiet us the way music does. Or inflame us. I mean, whatever the poet's going to do with it. Portia, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. Now, one last thing, and I'm going to let this go. At the end of a line, if the line runs on, it's called an enjambament. It runs on. Lots of readers who don't know how to read will stop at the end of the line because they think it's, you know, it's an iambic pentameter line. You never do. Remember the, remember the poem, um, Wind Hover, where Hopkins is describing the line and then goes crushed and then stops in the first foot. That's not an accident. He's just, he's just, or not crushed, um, buckled. Here, buckled, stop. The whole motion of that line gathers to that word and stops. Why? to reinforce our experience that that's exactly what happens and what we feel. He knows exactly what he's doing with music. So an enjambment means run on because the poet knows that with music. Sometimes he wants our emotions to go on. He wants us to feel. And he uses that for effect. Um, anyway, this is Portia's speech. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. The way he calms, stops, you know, this is, I mean, there's the meditative quality. She's not anxious. She's not passionate. There is a disinterested quality to what she's doing that's reflected in her words. This is stately, dignified, grave. Um, oh, here, there's the look down below at the bottom of the page. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn drawn. Look at those feet, some of those feet have more than two syllables. That's Hopkins adapting Old English alliterative verse to 
syllabic verse. It's a new kind of poetry. Frost, poem, this is from Stopping by Woods on a Stone Evening on page two. Um, this is iambic tetrameter, four feet, not five. Whose woods these are, I think I know. <clears throat> now we don't read it, remember. Whose woods these are, I think I know. What a way to kill a poem. His house is in the village though. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. Look at that third line, he will not see me. Does the, does the accent go on not or see? If you're reading rhetorically the way you should, because that's what I said a minute, we always read rhetorically. Because to do that means there are moments of counterpoint where he's using the expectation that it's an iambic rhythm and it'll get suddenly inverted. It's like a counterpoint in music. Is the stress on not or C? It's on not, right? It's an inverted foot. So with all these IMs, suddenly there's a trochee. Why? Because it's to give emphasis to that point that there's a mistake here, there's something wrong, that he's not stopped here before. I don't, I don't know if we've read this, I think we may have, but I'm, I'm gonna read it again when we get into moderns, but. So it would read, whose woods these are, I think I know, his house is in the village though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. Yeah, you could read that and think, that's prose. That's how masterful Frost is. That's how masterful Shakespeare is. The Good Morrow is um, Dunn's poem. It's a poem about love. I'm not gonna read it tonight. I'm gonna let it go with, we're not gonna read a poem tonight, but it's, read it when you go home tonight. Read these poems from Dunn and Shakespeare. It's, it's a poem about that moment when he fell in love and he realizes that he really had never lived until he loved. And on that moment, it was like a good morrow, a, a, a new day, that it marked something. I know that's true for most of us. When you, when you look at your life and you realize that when you fell in love, it was this day, it's like you really missed out on something, that there was something not there until that moment. And love brings you into something new. Yeah, is that clear? So the good morrow is that, sonnet 116 is Shakespeare's poem on love, and sonnet 73, uh, once again on love, when, you're, when you become aware that you're gonna lose the person you love. So it's important to love now while you can. This thou perceivest which makes thy love more strong to love that well which thou must leave ere long. We're all gonna die. Are we, are we getting ready for that moment? Are we doing what we should? Are we trying to love the way we've been asked to? Because we're not gonna be around here. So, let me stop. Um, any questions about, I know that's a 10 minute introduction in, in the scansion. Is that clear, do you all have, do you have any questions about that? Was it clear enough or, huh? You're good? I didn't ask you if you were good. I asked you if you understood it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? What? Enough to go on. Okay, okay. Okay, let's... Hamlet. I'm going to take two minutes. I just want to point out some things at the beginning. 
Remember what I said about the openings of all of Shakespeare? Hold on a second. I can't not do this. Because I, I don't know if we're ever going to do this again. <laughs> Toast to Bob. <laughs> well, you didn't try the other one. Don't tempt me, I will. <laughs> Working on getting rid of this one first. Um, remember I said the openings always give something away. That it's it's um, like the Bible, let there be light. It's, I mean, that... If you thought about the importance of that word for the whole Bible, it, it would be sort of stunning. But um, Shakespeare's plays have that kind of artistry. He, he, it's like a composer, a musician. The openings are like the announcement of a theme, <coughs> a theme that gets picked up and explored. Um, Hamlet begins, who's there? It's the fundamental question of modernity. What we're going to find in this play is that over and over and over again, characters under Claudius, who is a totalitarian ruler, it's Shakespeare's awareness of a totalitarian... This is act for Machiavelli. It is a despotic, arbitrary ruler who tries to control everything, even the human soul. And we know from Christ that's outside the range of politics. Given to Caesar what Caesar's given to... Right? What, we, what we'll watch in this play is how Claudius is threatened by what happens with Hamlet, and he puts everybody on him, even his head of state, who is the father of Ophelia, who loves Hamlet. So even she becomes implicated in this totalitarian world. Like Merchant of Venice and Othello, there's nobody in this world who escapes the evil at the center of it. Everybody has to deal with it. But that opening question, who's there? Do we ever really see clearly the person before? How well did Amelia know her husband, Iago? No, not very well at all. I mean, just think about all that he did. I mean, you know, every once in a while when we read about these violent things and you hear the parents come in or somebody related to the person, what a stunning moment that must be for anybody. I mean, how do you deal with that moment to discover that this person did and not have any notion that that's the person in your family or your husband or your wife or... Um, a ghost has been appearing and we learn from the meeting between the ghost and Hamlet that the ghost is the ghost of his father who was murdered by Claudius, his uncle, without having had the chance to confess. So it's very Catholic, okay? This occurs at Wittenberg. This is so important. This occurs at Wittenberg. Wittenberg was the university at which Luther hung up his theses. Now, the actual Prince Hamlet, it's been a long time since, the actual Prince Hamlet lived somewhere between the 9th and 11th centuries. I can't remember where, when, and I haven't looked it up. Wittenberg wasn't founded until, I think, 1503, something like that. And Luther hangs up his theses shortly after that. Why did Shakespeare set this in? in Denmark and Wittenberg? My answer to that is because he's dealing with a fundamentally Protestant experience. What's put everybody on guard here at the opening, who's there that raises this spooky question? This ghost has been appearing. Hamlet goes to meet the ghost and discovers it's the ghost of his father who says, my brother killed me. Remember me, avenge my death. 
Old Hamlet belongs to that old warrior honor code. Othello belongs to it. Achilles, Odysseus. I'm so glad for you guys. I really am. Who, who would appreciate that if you hadn't read the Iliad or Odyssey Aeneid? I'm not kidding. This whole thing of honor, who would, who would give that any worth today? You guys carry that in you. God, I'm so glad. So glad. Are you? Are, are you really? Truthfully, I am too. I can't tell you the joy it gives me. Um, he says, avenge my death. That old king belongs to an honor code. Hamlet has been a student at Wittenberg. He's a Christian. Now here's the dilemma he's facing. His father says, avenge my death. God says, vengeance is mine. What Hamlet's facing is a, a sin that could be mortal for him. Okay? And as a Christian, he knows the ghost might be tempting him. This may be a demonic spirit. Now think about what's happening. For somebody to, to make a private revelation, the basis of his religious beliefs, what that does to him. If he acts on the basis of that private revelation, what's he going to do? Kills, he kills his uncle, and then people say, what are you doing? And his answer is, the ghost of my father told me to do it. What are they going to say? Crazy. You're mad. Are you kidding? I mean, how, how is there anything commensurable between a private revelation, something dealing with the supernatural, and the natural world? It's gone. In whatever way politics depends on some kind of consensus, people working things out in the natural order, now that's ransomed. It's held in ransom by a supernatural revelation. So you can see the predicament this puts him in. The, the amazing thing about Hamlet is the 19th century take on this play. God, the way critics. By the way, these are all Venetians. God, it drives me nuts. These are people from Venice. It's a modern world. I'm going to come to that today because it drives me nuts. Critics. Yeah. They said Hamlet's a play about, um, what's that word, deferral, the um, delaying. It's a play about delaying. Not, Hmm? Procrastinating, delaying. He's a procrastinator. He's an intellectual who lives in his head. For God's sake, if you'd met a ghost and said, kill my, kill my, what would you do? Go out and kill him? Hamlet's too smart. The first thing he does is what? He puts on a mousetrap play, like a good scientist, to test it out. And what does he does immediately afterwards? He tests it out. And, it, and it, it, for him, it's convincing proof because of Claudius' response that the ghost was right. And now that he knows that, what does he do? In the very next scene, he's going to kill the king. He, this is a delayer, a procrastinator? Absolutely not. I mean, that's such a bad... That's, a, that's a, the reading of a, of a secular mind who doesn't deal with supernatural realities. And, and if you know anything about Freud and the people who read Freud into this, they ignore the ghost. How can you read Hamlet and ignore the ghost? He's at the center of it. It's, it's the whole point of this is the way in which a, a private revelation that nobody else can share in, the difficulty that that puts you in with respect to the whole larger political world. America, Protestant country, at the center of this is, is this psyche that, that makes the private will an arbiter of his actions. Catholic, we. We, 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 not I, we. How fundamentally different that is. So what does Hamlet do after the mousetrap? 
He's convinced that he can kill the king. He's ready to kill him. He steps out. Claudius is at prayer. He draws his sword to kill him and says, this is a good way to avenge my dad. I killed his murderer when he's in prayer and I send him to heaven. He says, no, I'll wait until he's doing something damnable. Now here's a, now talk, talk about, you're all laughing. Um, talk about reading. We've been talking about the importance of reading all along. Listen to this. I don't know of critics who properly see this. It's sort of stunning because they downplay the religious element of it. Does anybody need, we've got two sweats here. If any, Tracy, you okay? I'm sorry, Karen. Okay, is everybody okay? Tracy's looking for one. Um, Hamlet faces a lot of dangers in this in this play. He's actually going to be captured by pirates and ransomed at the end. He's he, he's going to go through some serious ordeal. His friends are going to betray him. Ophelia's going to put him in a difficult position. He's so isolated from his world by what happens in that moment. It's just important to see that. But here's one of the interesting things. When he sees the outcome of the mousetrap play, he has a basis for acting. He's going to kill this king. And we know he means good on it because in the very next scene, he stabs Polonius who's hiding in the closet because he thinks it's Claudius. So we know this is not a this is not a procrastinator. This man is in earnest. This, is, was, this was his father who was killed. Um, and by the way, think about um, Telemachus. How much of Hamlet is owed to that? Because Shakespeare knows this stuff really well. You are following me, yeah? Um, and remember how Telemachus looked at Orestes because Orestes had to kill his mother to avenge his father's death. So there's a long history that is a part of Shakespeare's thinking when he brings this into the modern world. In the very next scene, he sees Claudius at prayer and, and is ready to kill him and says, this is a good way to avenge my dad, send this guy to heaven. I'll wait until he's doing something damnable. Now think about that. And we know he means good on it because he kills Claudius, or Polonius the next thing, seeing, thinking it's Claudius. When you look at the dangerous moments that Hamlet faces in that play, we tend to associate dangers with sword fights or adventures or visible threats or something. I think one of the most dangerous moments in that play takes place then. Because what he wants to do is damn a man. And according to his own beliefs, do not take the name of thy Lord in vain. We cannot speak for God. The ultimate outcome of a man's soul is in God's hand. And one of the things that we see in this play is this, this totalitarian inclination to want to control everything, to, to, to know the inner soul of a man. Polonius says, I will find out what's the heart of this man. Um, Hamlet's two friends presume to, to spy on him. He will get furious at his, this is a friend. And he says, play this recorder. And the guy says, I can't. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, Guildenstern says, I can't, I can't. He says, play it, I can't. He says, you, you cannot play on this fret and you think you can play on the frets inside of me? It's the whole modern world's belief that we can get into the soul of a person with knowledge that Shakespeare's calling into question here. The presumption behind that act that's been so encouraged in our modern world. So this whole question, who's there? 
is fundamental to this play. How well do we read people? And think about what I just said a minute ago. Hamlet looks at Claudius and says, I'm not going to kill him now, he's a prayer. When Claudius get up, he says, my thoughts, you know, he wants to pray, but he can't do it. Hamlet could have killed him then. He misreads it. And he misreads it the next day or the next scene when you know, he kills Polonius thinking. So this whole thing about reading, the, the, the way we look at the world and think we understand something when we don't. How politically astute Shakespeare is. He's helping us to see that there's so much more going on in the world than we see always. And at the center of it in this modern world is this question, who's there? And what we see in Hamlet is, is that that whole question is um, exacerbated, amplified, because of this private revelation. It has unsettled him. It's, it's put on him a burden that forces him to take something that belongs to the afterlife into this world when there's no basis for it. Is that clear? How, how, how in, this is why Hamlet's such an important play because it speaks so directly to... Here, just, I'm, if you've got Hamlet with you, take, I'm going to do this just briefly um, to, to set off on this, um, to set off against that opening. In Act 1, Scene 2, Claudius meets with all the courtiers, the, the, the important people of state, and this is like a state of the union. It's exactly like a state of the union that our presidents go through. It's exactly what it is. He addresses his, I don't want to read it right now, but, it, but when you read Hamlet, you start pay really close attention to this speech because this is a master Machiavellian creature. He, hmm? Claudius, the king. Um, I mean, I mean he, there, it's amazing. I mean, I, there's almost nothing he doesn't see what Shakespeare does. He's addressing his court and he says, now remember, after he killed his brother, he became king, and to solidify his hold on it, to strengthen it, he marries the king's wife. And that's what makes Hamlet so bitter because when he comes home from Wittenberg, his father's just died and his brother, his uncle, has married his mother. He, he looks at his mother as, as being involved in a betrayal that she should be holding on to the memory of her dead husband instead she's married. So it's spiritually, I mean, he just, you know, he, he's bearing these burdens that nobody else in the play bears. Though yet of Hamlet, our dear brother's death, the memory be green, and that it us befitted to hear our hearts in grief, to bear our hearts, our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe, yet so far hath discretion fought with nature that we with wisest sorrow think on him together with remembrance of ourselves. That is, we're really sad, but we have to get on with affairs of state. So he keeps giving this thing of holding on to two things at once. And notice, notice that he does it verbally and everybody buys it off. I mean, buys it. Think about how often um, State of the Union addresses are get, and, and how wrapped up people get in them. They, they become captivated by these speeches. <coughs> Fathers, I don't know if you were all here last Saturday, but Father's homily was a wonderful, was Christ the King, where he was reminding everybody that we put too much importance in political movements when we are asked to keep Christ as our king of everything. That when we vest too much importance in political figures, we're, we're putting too much into it. So he keeps balancing these things, and then he says, with mirth in funeral, 
and with dirge in marriage. <laughs> they're happy in funeral because they're looking forward to something. There's a dirge in marriage because they're holding on to a grief. So watch the way, this guy is cunning, the way he brings contradictories together to help people overcome their resistance. And the question is, how many of them were actually, or were any of them implicated in what he did anyway? But this is the, this is the word that I want you to, or this phrase I want you to see, in equal scale weighing delight and dole taken to wife. So he's, he's brought all these contradictions together to bring him to this point. Nor have we herein barred your better wisdoms which have freely gone with this affair along for all our thanks. Just for a moment, because I'm stopping. What, what are the implications of that statement? I want you to look at that really closely. Nor have we herein barred your better wisdoms which have freely gone with this affair along for all our thanks. To me, that's one of the most shrewd statements, and you can read it and pass over it and not give it a thought. If, if what he's doing is partly the result of following their counsel and something goes wrong, who can you blame? Right? Everybody else. He's implicated everybody in it. He's only acting partly on their counsel. So, so this guy is a very manipulative political ruler. He knows exactly what he's doing. And we'll see the effects of it as we move through the play. Anyway, so let me, let me stop there. That's just to sort of get you going on Hamlet. Do you, any questions here about? I know that's a, that's a lot, but I, I, it, I hope it helps. Um, read this play closely, because it really is an amazing play. It really is an amazing play. Hamlet's an amazing figure. Was Shakespeare comparing? Hamlet's friends to Job's friends because they were um, not helpful at all. They ascribed motives and, and uh, reasons for suffering that weren't there and that weren't really... That's sort of interesting. Um, I guess you could make a comparison in one way because the parallel that you're describing is there. I mean, it's exactly like that. But... Um, my own sense is that that's not exactly what's on his mind, and he would have known that Job story really well um, for exactly the reasons you gave, which are right to the point. Because what's at issue here is that um, if, if you remember the opening of Job, Job or God and the devil, Yahweh and the devil are talking, and um, God allows the devil to do something to test Job. So we, we know, even though, even though you can look, when we did um, drama at UD, we, we included the Job story as a part of our work in tragedy because the suffering sure was so great. Um, but the interesting thing about that opening is that it, it, it almost gives everything away because you know God is allowing this. So no matter how horrible it all, he loses everything. We know that something's going on, that God's doing something. And we know at the end it gives it all back and more. Um, but the difference is in Job, Job is questioning, doubting God and calling him into question. 
So it has more to do with a kind of existential doubt about the, the meaning of life um, and God's place in it. Here, the context is sinister. There's a leader, Claudius, who, who's um, acting to get control of this whole regime and putting all the, he puts Polonius on Hamlet, he puts his two friends on him. <coughs> so there's nobody in this place that's not betraying him. And after the revelation, because he knows something everybody else doesn't know, he, he puts on what he, he calls this antique disposition. He's got to act as if he's unhinged and he unsettles everything. But the, so there is a connection between the Joe story, but there's a, fundament, there's a fundamental difference and it's really important to keep that difference alive because here his friends are betraying him. Um, they really are, and in Job, you've got a, a Jewish sense of bringing the law to bear on this, on Job and saying, there's something wrong with you, you sinned, and you know, I mean, they're acting from the law and trying to be good, and we learn, we learn from them that that's something you shouldn't be doing. With Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, that's a sinister betrayal. They're his friends, and what we're seeing, this is so, this so applies to Venice. They use, in this world, everybody uses everybody. So it's a very, it's a very different context. Um, like a, a human agent versus a, uh, got a lot of spiritual. Uh, yeah, but not only a human agent, but evil. I mean, yeah. the, the motives of all these people are evil. I mean, versus they they're, Job's friends were just like, yeah, well, you know, that we have to go with the law. And the law says they think of themselves as being righteous. You know, that they're following this religious tradition, and and that Job has failed God in some way that he doesn't. God wouldn't do this otherwise. But you don't, we're not meant to read evil motives into what they're doing here. There's not a question. This is a sinister, there's a sinister work going, like Iago. Claudio has brought a, a sinister quality into this and it, it, it complicates everything. The, the wonderful thing about this, I hadn't thought about it until just now, but if you put Othello next to um, Hamlet, we're watching a modern world um, being tempted everywhere by evil. And what Shakespeare shows us is how innocent people are, that, that people in some ways are implicated in what goes on because they're not dealing with evil. And what if, I mean, that's for me the prophetic part. I mean, I'm gonna ask you at the end of the play, you know, where is Christ and where's the prophetic element? And I'm giving a part of the answer away. It seems to me one of the things that's prophetic about it, he's showing the way in which moderns in a secular world are not dealing with evil and the effects of that on a culture because they're devastating. They're, they're devastating here, the, you, the whole world gets wiped out. They're devastating in Othello. You know, the number of people who are killed is, so both of them are painful, painful plays in that and they really do belong together as mirrors of our modern world. Okay. I'm thinking, I remember saying to everybody when we were doing Aeneid, this is not for faint hearts. I feel like I've got to say this again. All right. <laughs> it, if anybody wants to leave, now's a good time. It just makes me think that be wise as serpents and gentle as Yeah, I can't tell you how much I care that. I mean, so I cannot tell you. I hear that all the time. Okay, briefly, we're not going to get to Othello tonight.
genres. Merchant of Venice was a comedy. Hamlet and Othello belong to a tragic world. What's the difference? What's the difference? When we were in graduate school, Louise Cowan had put together this genre wheel to show the relationship between them. I differ with her a little bit, but, but she did a wonderful thing that you would have thought so obvious that most teachers would have done it, but they hadn't. But Aristotle says there's four genres. I, I think there's three. The tragedy and comedy belong to, they are, they are different aspects of drama. Um, but we've got three. We've got lyric, drama, and narrative. Those are the three genres we have. If you look at and put them together, you can see a whole world. And I'm saying that really seriously, that a whole world comes into view through poetry in the different genres. <laughs> the book that I'm writing is making the argument that the ultimate sources of these three genres are the three persons of the Trinity, just to show you how complete it is for me in my mind. Lyric is, is the beginning of it all. Lyric is the personal voice of the poet struggling to describe what, what we can only call his imminent life, his inner life, his feelings for something. So in the lyric poet, we tend to be drawn into the lyric interior, the subjective interior. It's, it's Yahweh, I am that am. Yeah, I am that am. It's that inner subjectivity. We, we, we're, we're allowed in to see his feelings, to experience his feelings, for, usually, traditionally, for the Lord, for the beloved. The lyric, the, the lyric tradition starts with the Psalms. What's at the center of the Psalms? The psalmist's love of Yahweh and all that it puts him through. So in the lyric, um, we tend to find ourselves located in the garden, Adam and Eve, in the beginnings, with the Lord. And what we, what we find in, after the fall is a loss of the garden, and it divides down into three stages. You can divide the lyric into um, anticipation, consummation, and lamentation. Now you can see where that's going. You look forward to being with the Lord, with the beloved. Western wind will, Thabo, small rain down. Oh, if I could be back in the bed with my beloved. You know, so many of the lyrics that we've read are the, the Shakespeare lyrics that I just gave you. Done is the poet longing for his beloved. The moment of consummation, when the love is, is completed, their arrest takes place. And it's followed by the loss, the lamentation. So the great experiences of the lyric are anticipations of joy, joy, sorrow from death. So the whole range of our emotional life is captured in the lyric as it points inward, right? Okay, so the lyric tends, us to, give, tends to give us this inward, the view of our inward life. The poet is the one, I've been saying this, it's prophetic. He's the one who helps us to see inside things, beyond surfaces. Yeah. And in the lyric, we see the inner life of the poet himself. The, we, we learn to be more discriminating about our emotional life. He helps us make us aware of our feelings. And if anybody struggled to know feelings, you know how hard it is. It seems to me particularly hard for men. I mean, you have that take all the time that men are not good. 
Except I would say, take a look at the poets, because and, and, and one, one of the things you can say, I, it's a question in my mind whether any poet can be a great poet if he doesn't have a woman in him, the feminine wisdom, the, that feminine sensitivity. Um, so, at this point, the lamentation, the death, we move into the world of drama and tragedy. Because tragedy is about loss. The, lo the loss of the garden, the loss of the beloved. When you enter the world of tragedy, you enter what Louise Callan called the tragic abyss. Achilles, often his tent. Odysseus, often cal Calypso, um, concealed, kept from his um, Kleos. We've gone through that, right? The, the honor. So long as he's there, he's in a, she's in a cave. Calypso's in a cave. So is Circe. So long as he's in that cave, he's in a darkness, preventing him from getting home. Aeneas with a sibyl in the underworld, the horrors that he had to face there. Because once you enter into this abyss, you're entering into a, um, a thing that is ghostly, ghastly, horrible. It approaches non-being, as if the person is, a, is facing the extinction of who he is, his being. And it gets, it gets even darker when you enter a Christian, in a Jewish world, a Jewish Christian world, because it's associated with Sheol or hell. So when Dante goes in, except he's got Virgil, that's why it's a comedy. He's got Virgil as a guide. Now stop there for a second. Look at Othello. After that, that second and third act, when Iago begins to work on him, there's only one way to describe Othello. He is, he is trapped in this abyss. His whole world, at its heart, is going apart, falling apart. Everything he loved is being destroyed and darkened. So in all tragedy, the, the tragic hero enters an abyss. It separates him from other men. He enters a darkness. And the question will be, how will he get out of it, or can he get out of it? Um, in comedy, um, Louise always described comedy as um, just missing the bus. You're running for a bus, you've got to make it in the morning, you're not going to get to work if you don't. You trip and fall, the bus pulls up, you pick yourself up and the bus takes off and you're scraping your knees off and all the scratches on it. In the, in the Friday group, I want to, I'm, I'm going to retell that story because um, I don't know if you know um, Tom and Linda who are in the morning group, but they told Susanna's story uh, when we met them once when that, how did it go, Doc, that, that Linda went off to work. No. Go ahead, tell it. Tom went to work and he left ahead of Linda. And she spent the next 45 minutes looking for her keys and realized that she couldn't find them. She called him and said, have you seen my keys? And he reached into his pocket and... There they were. <laughs> so um, she got a ride from a neighbor and took her to work. And he showed up at lunch with sushi or something to make up for it, um, and, and then he left, and took her keys. Oh. <laughs> I think he said he took the car because he left the keys and took the car, so no, no, no took it anyway. Anyway, when I tell the story about comedy on the Friday morning, I'm going to say it's not about missing the bus, it's about forgetting the keys or <laughs> change it up here. Um, and you know from our epic 
that um, in drama you move into a world of a battle. An epic battle is always to deal with some disorder that gets buried in this movement from the lyric into our world. Um, tragedy is about dealing with suffering, the isolation of the hero. Comedy is always about hope. Odysseus, long-suffering Odysseus. I, I really believe that's it, the tradition is it's such a tragic work, but it's not. It's, it's our first great comedy. At the center of comedy is hope. We always know that something else will help out. Comedy is a communal experience. Tragedies isolated. Tragedies always about individual responsibility. The focus on tragedy is always individual responsibility. The individual has to bear a burden that nobody else will. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Othello, Hamlet, right? So it's always about human responsibility, the burdens of it. Comedy is always about a community in which people help each other out. They bear their sufferings. The epic is always a battle to deal with these disorders. They're hidden. They, we never see them. But they come to light in the epic. We've talked about it. The epic hero bears it. And you move towards a refounding. And the refounding is to bring in a new order to return us to the garden. In the Christian worldview, the movement is from the garden to a new Jerusalem. And if you read the new Jerusalem, it's really interesting. We began in a garden. If you look at the city, the new Jerusalem, it is so much like a garden. The, the walls are almost more plants. They're plant-like. Everything is organic. It's not mechanical or mechanical the way it is in our world. So the whole movement in the, in the Bible is from the garden to the New Jerusalem, which itself is a living garden of living souls, made up of living souls. So in the lyric, I mean, sorry, in the, in the genres, we have the whole of our human experience. The lyrics we've been relating and reading are giving an aspect of it. We read a comedy, Merchant of Venice, now we're reading a tragedy. We, we will read another tragedy in Hamlet, and then we'll finish with a romance, which is a, a comedy deepened. It's the only way that I can describe it. Now, two things here before we go back to Othello. In, in, according to Aristotle, um, Aristotle said the plot is the soul of comedy. Not character. The, the modern emphasis on psychology makes character. But Aristotle's quite clear. Character is not the primary thing. The character is a part of an action unfolding. An action is taking place. I've been using this language from the beginning. Whether it's the Iliad, the Odyssey, an action is taking place. And the character is instrumental in it. We've seen that. But the, but the story is about an action. The plot is the, is the sequence of episodes, right? This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, right? Crisis comes to ransom his daughter. Agamemnon refuses it. Agamemnon and Achilles quarrel. Achilles withdraw. I mean, every story we could break down into its episodes. Aristotle says the, epi the plot is an imitation of an action. The plot, these episodes, are an imitation of an action. So by action, because if you know anything about Aristotle, you know that he had this amazing grasp of metaphysical realities. He, he wrote a book called The Physics. He wrote a book called The Metaphysics. 
which to me is the Hegel, Heidegger, no modern metaphysician comes close to what he does. He says the plot is an imitation of an action. So what he means is there is this inner movement of spirit, this movement of spirit, of spirit, that the plot imitates. And what we've got to do is learn to read to understand that. So very, from the very beginning, there's this, per, this, per, this change that Achilles undergoes, a change that Odysseus, Aeneas, all of Dante, you can say even in some ways. Now, at the center of every tragedy is what he called a peripatia and an anagnorisis. A peripatia is a turn. The anagnorisis is a moment of recognition. Oedipus goes through his life thinking he's got all the answers, and then he, he learns that, as a matter of fact, the cause of the city, the, the city's um, disease, the, the plague that's overcome the city, is himself. He caused it, and he, and he, he works hard to try to uncover it <coughs> without knowing that he himself was the cause of it. So he gets fierce when people oppose him, and then he, he learns to see that his anger got in the way, that he was blind all along, that he was the one that brought it about. What happens in the, in the course of that, all that unfolds in that story, is that he sees that he killed his mother and that the woman he married is his own mother. Killed his father. He, sorry, he killed his father. What did he say, his mother? He killed his father and married his, his mother. So that the children that they produced are his children and brothers and sisters. It's an act of incest. That's at the beginning of our literature. Freud makes a lot of that. Sadly, Freud does, I mean, it's just, this is so bothersome. What, what, so, what Sophocles went on to do is write Oedipus at Colonus, where Oedipus ends happy. So, and if you, if you don't read it, you miss the whole movement of the thing. He learns from what happens earlier. I think he's an extraordinarily beautiful man. When, it, when blood is pouring out of his eyes, to me, he's an extraordinarily beautiful creature. He, he sees himself for the first, he's horrified by what he sees. It's, it, it's the cross. It's the, beauty, it's the grotesque beauty of God on a cross. He sees for the first time. He's radically changed. So Aristotle says at the beginning of all, or in the course of an action in tragedy, there's a moment of a peripatia, a turn, and a recognition. It's as if we're going through life and we suddenly see something about ourselves that we didn't see before, and we turn. We call those... Um, what's the word for conversion? The metanoia? Isn't it metanoia? I think it's metanoia. We call those metanoia, conversion moments. And according to our faith, we hope they go on our life, that we keep turning and getting better. So at, this, at the center of this action is this peripatia, this turn. Um, a recognition. Now, all tragedy then begins in prosperity and ends in some kind of calamity. Um, the, the hero learns to recognize something about himself and there's this great loss that's the consequence of what the Greeks would have called hamartia, 
an error, a mistake. We call it sin. Um, and it's on the basis of that that all these awful things happen. Just, we've been seeing that from the beginning. It shouldn't be a surprise. There's, there are these peripeteas in the Iliad that all these men are living according to this honor code, thinking they're doing everything they should. All these bad things happen. Achilles steps outside of that code. He rec Remember, I said, he's the only man. He says, I let my people down. He goes back into the war. There's a turn, and the whole action is resolved. So in the Iliad, we actually have a pattern of drama, what unfolds in drama. Comedy is just the reverse. In comedy, there's a movement from a, a potentially tragic situation to a blessing. That which you could never expect happens. So there is in comedy a, a peripatia, a turn, a recognition, some kind of insight, new insight, and a blessing, a joy, a happiness. Typically in Shakespeare's comedies, they end in marriage. But you can say that you know, the Odysseus has a comic ending. The Divine Comedy obviously does Dante sees gone. Um, Merchant of Venice was moving towards a tragedy. Antonio was going to be killed. And then maybe even Shylock. And it all gets turned because of everything that Portia does. And they're all back in Belmont. Now here in Othello, here's the question I've got to ask. I don't want to answer it, but does, does, does Othello see, is there a moment of recognition? How do we look at the ending when he takes his life? How are we going to look at that? Fundamental question for our work on Othello. So this is genre, okay? We've been reading, we read a comedy, we're reading a tragedy, Hamlet will be a tragedy, and then we're going to move into the world of romance with um, Winter's Tale. So let me stop. Any, any questions on genre? I feel like I'm getting back to the classroom and I'm not sure I should do this. Is this helpful? Is this helpful? Is it? Is it? Good. Good. Any questions? What did you write before Calamity? Say? What did you write before Calamity? Uh, prosperity. Prosperity. Sorry. Sorry. Prosperity. They're, in, they're inverted trajectories from prosperity to some kind of disaster, some kind of calamity, some, some, by the way, every, every tragedy has as its outcome a refounding. We've been talking about this from the beginning. Remember, all great works are about foundings, that in, in tragedy, um, this disorder that's been hidden is brought to the surface face, the tragic hero bears it. This is Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. And the conditions have been met to make possible a new founding. Something's rotten in the state of Denmark. It's been cleansed. A cleansing takes place. Now all the disorders have been answered. It, it's, in a, it's in a situation where it can now go on to a new order. A justice has been, or a justice has been achieved. Claudius is killed. Laertes is killed. The queen dies. You know. Okay, let's. No questions about genre. 
I think what I'd like to do tonight, because we don't have much time, um, I want to read just, let me, let me try to briefly summarize the plot up through the end, and then I'd like to look just at a couple of passages and, and try to put this all into perspective and then ask what to me are some pretty hard questions. After um, Act Two, when Iago first insinuates that Cassio is up to something no good that involves Desdemona, do you remember? I, I think I meant, I talked about that, didn't I? That in that one passage where he says, um, oh, I don't like that, and Othello says, what? And then Iago acts like he's reluctant to talk. He, he plays this so amazingly. Um, he acts like he's trying to protect somebody. He's a good man. And then he, he uses that word thought, and it keeps recurring. Did I go over that? Yes. Okay. Because in, in the course of about 100 lines, that word thought or thinking or proof or doubt, but mostly thought or thinking, recurs 20, 30 times. It's Shakespeare's way of making us aware that Othello has been moved into a world of thinking and cunning, and it's a world that he doesn't know. He's from Africa. He's a warrior. He's spent his life fighting. The outcome of something depended on his courage, not his intellectual acumen, his courage. Um, let me see if I can... Um, Yeah. Um, oh God, where is this son of a gun? And I've got the words, but I, I hold on. Remember, he leaves Othello in doubt about his wife. Um, and he leaves and then comes back this is Act 3, Scene 3 about line 260 or so he comes back and says it would have been better if he'd not known if his wife had slept with every, all the soldiers in his army and he'd not known about it, it would have been bliss. says, it would be better to, to steal and not know because not to know it means you're not stealing. So the issue, this is so to the point here. The issue is, remember, the, the commercial regime prides itself on its mind. This goes to the heart of the problem. Um, the commercial regime prides itself on its intellect, being intelligent. And Othello says, it would have been better not to know, as if ignorance is bliss. Because once you know about bad things, then you bear a burden of consciousness. And what's at stake now is the thought that his wife might be unfaithful. And he says, it would have been better not to know. He gets furious at Iago and threatens him. Iago then tells him the story about sleeping with Cassio, when Cassio was moaning in his sleep and dreams and making love to um, Desdemona and kissing him. You know, and, putting his leg over him, and Othello is horrified at the image of his Cassio doing this. So he's more and more convinced, and then he gets angry and says, prove it, or I'll take your life. 
because he's so outraged at the thought. Because Desdemona comes, and when he sees her, he says, there's no way this could be true. She's, she, he knows her to be too good. He can't put it together. Um, but finally he's convinced, and then there's that scene where the, um, the embassy comes from Venice asking Othello to return and um, having Cassio replace him. And Desdemona, at, at, at hearing that, says she's glad. Now this is after Iago has convinced Othello that she's betrayed him in, with Cassio. So to have the news that Cassio is now going to repeat or replace him, and Desdemona say she's glad because remember, she's been taking up Cassio's cause, believing that he's a good man and that he should be restored. So when she hears that news, she's saying, good, he's, he's recovered his position. When he hears that, he's furious, absolutely furious. Um, he, will, he will slap her, and um, there will be that scene involving Iago and Lodovico where he will say to Lodovico that, um, that, that, that he's seen Othello lose his temper in that way and show a weak side to himself. And this is the side the Venetians have not seen. Now stop for a moment because I want to just put this together. He's worked on Rodrigo. He uses his mind to convince him of a number of things, that he can get Desdemona. And when he starts to slip, he says that um, Desdemona slept with Cassio. It'll make it easier for him to sleep because she's a loose woman. All he has to do is wait. So he, his mind is capable of twisting things to take advantage of whatever the circumstances are. Um, he gets his wife to get the hanky when Montano is wounded and Cassio goes off. He insinuates when Cassio goes off that Cassio is given to drink and he puts him down. So he, he always looks like he's doing a service to people when as a matter of fact he's putting people in a worse light. So he, he takes situations and makes them what they're not in order to further his own plans. He does it with Lodovico in this scene when Othello leaves and Lodovico from Venice is wondering what are they, you know, what, this is the man they've trusted and here Iago has not good things to say about him. Now hold on to that just for a moment because it seems to me it's saying something about Venice. Um, after he slaps her, um, there's that scene between Desdemona and Amelia when Othello has told Desdemona to go to her bedroom because at that point he's planning to kill her. He wants, she doesn't know this, but he wants her to wait. He has something to take care of and he's going to come to the room and kill her. That scene between Desdemona and Amelia when Desdemona says to me, put out my wedding gown. She can't talk. She's, she's so overcome. Her response to what happened is to take it all in herself. She asks herself if she, if she said something wrong and she can't recall anything, but she's concerned. And when Amelia says, men are all this way, you know, which would be a natural response, she says, no, I love him even when he's, I mean, she so completely loves him that she, she sees a good in what he's doing even when he's angry at her. When they're preparing for bed that night, Desdemona recalls this maid of her mother who sang this song, Willow, about um, um, a woman who died 
she remember that song it's, a, it's at, at almost at the beginning of every in almost every fourth act of Shakespeare's tragedy there's a moment when music is brought in to change the mood emotionally and prepare for the fifth act and this is what happens then she, she sings that song Willow Willow do you remember um, the, the woman questioned her lover's fidelity and the lover left her and she dies. And Desdemona sees herself as, as doing the, as the same outcome happening to her, that she, she feels like, there's, I, I don't think she has any clarity on this, but it's clear that she has some sense that things will not be right, something's wrong. And that in, in some sense it's shaped in terms of death. And then she asked this question, um, would, would you betray yourself? Would you have sex with another man for the whole world? And Amelia says she would because it's the world and it's in the world's terms, she'd have it back and she'd confess that it would be okay. And Desdemona says she never would. So you see the practical woman in one sense and then you see another indication that there is this kind of precious innocence and virtue to Desdemona in her innocence. Um, the, the, the plot involving Iago and Rodrigo and Cassio gets foiled. Um, Rodrigo is wounded fatally and Othello hears the cries and assumes that Cassio has been killed because Iago had committed himself to killing him for Othello. And then he sits down at the bed and I read this last time so I'm not going to read it again. But it's that scene where he says, um, it is the cause, it is the cause. If I, he looks at the candle, if I quench that light, I can relight it. But if I quench your soul, he knows that once he takes her life, he can't bring it back. He wants her to confess she won't. She, she doesn't know that she's, she doesn't have any sense of what's happened. Now I want to read this. So if you can turn to Act 5, Scene 2, there's a couple of passages here I want to just look at. About line 5560, he asks her to confess um, and he tells her she's going to die. Desdemona, then Lord have mercy on you, I say amen. And have you mercy too, I never did offend you in my life, never loved Cassio, but with such general warranty of heaven as I might love, I never gave him token. By heaven I saw my handkerchief. He sees that as, a, as evidence. Um, and makest me call what I intend to do a murder. By denying it, she's making him a killer. And he doesn't see himself that way. He sees himself as an instrument of justice. A murder which I thought a sacrifice. I saw the handkerchief. He found it then. I never gave it to him. Send for him hither. Let him confess the truth. He has confessed. Can't believe it. Um, he says, out, strumpet, weepest thou for him to my face? O banish me, my lord, but kill me not. Down, strumpet, kill me tomorrow. Let me live tonight. But half an hour, being done, there's no pause. He smothers her. O lord, lord, Amelia comes in. My lord, my lord, ho, my lord. What noise is this? Not dead? Not yet quite dead? I that am cruel and yet merciful, I would not have thee linger in thy pain. So, so. He clearly smothers her some more to finish the job. Um, he tells Amelia, I have no wife, oh insupportable, oh heavy hour. Methinks it should be now a huge eclipse of sun and moon. Remember I talked last time about his poetry that he says, 
he's rude of speech, and he speaks these lines that are more eloquent than almost anybody in Shakespeare, because it's a way, I think, Shakespeare has of wanting us to see that there is this beauty in him that is a man, but he's doing this. Amelia, I do beseech you that I may speak with you. Oh, good, my lord, I had forgot thee. Oh, come in, Amelia, soft by and by, let the curtains draw. Where art thou? He opened. Amelia comes in. Oh, my good lord, yonder foul murder done. Who now? But now, my lord, is it the very error of the moon? She comes more near earth than she was wont and makes men mad. Cassio, my lord, has killed a young Venetian. No, Cassio's not killed. Not Cassio killed, then murders out of tune, and sweet revenge grown harsh. Desdemona, oh, falsely, falsely murdered. Oh, my lord, what cry is that? Now, we're yeah. to suppose that she was dead. And suddenly, we hear this. So, what are we to make of this? Amelia, oh, lord, what cry is that? Othello, what, what, out and alas, that was my lady's voice. Help, help, ho, help. O lady, speak again. Sweet Desdemona. O sweet mistress, speak. Desdemona, a guiltless death I die. O who has done this deed? Nobody. I myself farewell. Commend me to my kind lord. O farewell. Now she dies. Why, how should she be murdered? It goes on. Othello is going to be brought in short. I mean, Iago. And the, um, the reference will be made to uh, Rodrigo's death and, and the letters that he had that, that makes clear what, um, what Iago's been doing. But hold off on that just for a second. What do we make of this scene? She seemed to have died. She seems to come back to life. And she says, nobody, I myself, farewell. Commend me to my kind Lord. Did she die or not? And what are we to, how are we to understand her saying, nobody, I myself, farewell? Commend me to my kind Lord. Farewell. She wanted to save his life so he didn't have to pay for killing her. Because he, she says that she killed herself. Who has done this deed? Nobody. I myself. So. Nobody. I myself. Some people read this as a woman protecting her husband in a violent act, because yeah. some women do. Is that it, or? What's another way? <laughs> Remember, I've been asking you to, to, to be careful of um, poetry here, that very often something is. Okay. Um, by the way, go back just for a minute to the very beginning of Act 3. I, I want to do this just quickly to set a context here. I hold on to this question that I'm asking about Desdemona. Act three begins with that clown coming out, the musician, and asking that they play music, or the musician, and then and the clown comes out um, and asks, what are you playing? The musician says all this. The clown makes fun of that and says something about a tail, and we're to understand that it's passing gas from these wind instruments. And then the clown says, Mary, sir, by many a wind instrument that I know, but masters, here's money for you, and the general likes your music that he desires, for love is to make no more noise. If you have any music that may not be heard, to it again, but as they say, to hear music, the general, so he's asking him to play a music that can't be heard. Now what do we know about unheard music from Merchant of Venice, from Venice? 
Karen, do you have something? I was going to say it drives the dogs mad. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you remember the two worlds? The way oh, we yes, there was. Right. Go ahead. Marcia. There was music, um, not in Venice, but in the other place. Belmont. Belmont. Yes. That's where the music was. Right. Can you hear it? No. No. It's the music of the spheres. It's only the holy, the blessed. So, Act 3 begins with this... By the way, comic scenes are not just comic relief. When Shakespeare's got fools in the act, he's always showing something through fools that most people don't see. There's this mention about unheard music. Act 3 begins on this note of if you can play a music that's unheard. There is no unheard music being played which says we're not in this world. We're in a world in which there is no unheard music, i.e. we're in a world in which evil now is... We're outside of that world. This is a world in which right now evil is setting in motion everything that's against the music of the spheres. And we're watching it unfold. We're right because the last three, I mean, th at three, four, five, we, we watch Iago abuse everybody, fool everybody, trick everybody, and bring Othello to a point of madness. So we're in a world in which evil is active. And nobody from Venice sees it. Every, everybody in that Venetian world is innocent. Now go back. How do we understand? She says, nobody I myself farewell, commend me to my kind Lord Othello. She says, a guiltless death I die, and then says, nobody I myself. Is she protecting him? I had a wild thought when I was reading this, and that is that she's taking that guilt on herself. In if, some if ways, she is why? Because she was innocent, okay, but she was innocent as well, and couldn't think that this would happen, and hence wasn't prepared. Wasn't prepared, or, or didn't, didn't do her. Yeah. Didn't, didn't recognize it, didn't do her personal responsibility yeah. toward stopping it. Yeah. And for that, she takes on her responsibility. That's my reading of it, by the way. I don't, I mean, it's not a popular reading, but it, but here, let me, let me offer a thought. Remember that passage when Brabantio came out and said, what noise is this? This, this, this is Venice, it's not a Grange. And then Iago has that comment where he says, Zounds, um, um, you have this way of living so that if the devil told you to worship, you would not do it because if the devil tells you to do something, you do the opposite. What that signals is, I went through this, that Venice is this world in which it thinks it's self-sufficient and the one thing that it does not deal with or take responsibility for is evil. It puts itself beyond it as if reason is sufficient to deal with everything. It makes everybody in this world susceptible to reason or to evil. Um, that's the nature of Venice. It's an unreal city. It, it, it prides itself in its self-sufficiency. And what do we see Iago working with? Everybody's reason. He, he never manipulates anybody without appealing to their reason to think something a certain way when it's not. 
So what we see in this city is he's working on love, but he does it through reason. He, he constantly, and I, and I remember I, I said, I mean, I, you know, I asked everybody to sort of catechetically bring this down to earth. Think about the number of times in our life when something small and subtle entered our mind that had the effect of putting somebody down in order to enhance ourselves or improve our own situation in the world. How often do people put people down in order to get ahead so that they treat other people as objects? What Shakespeare's showing us is what's at the center of that motion in Venice, in the commercial regime. If I can put it a little bit more broadly, remember the city comes into existence in separation from God, that its ethos is self-sufficient, that Venice is a world based on reason, the head, capital, the resourcefulness of the intellect. So, and, it, and it does this to get ahead, to improve. And it seems to me what Shakespeare's showing us is the opening that that, that gives Iago to use that on everybody. Because what makes everybody so vulnerable in this world is their innocence, their, their failure to take responsibility for evil. And it's interesting to me at the end, in light of that, I mean, if you look at the whole play, that what sets her apart at this moment, she says, nobody, I myself. Now, we can say she took it all on herself the way she did, and sometimes wives do in the face of, she's an extraordinary creature, but I also wonder if there, if she didn't see something at this moment, because very often these, what we call liminal moments, threshold moments, that suddenly you have these revelations. You, because Amelia does it, and the next, she's gonna put it all together with her, that she suddenly sees what Iago had been doing. This is her husband, and, and her response is, my husband, my husband, my husband? She couldn't believe it. And then suddenly, it's like this moment of illumination where, um, now, remember what I was trying to suggest here in this clown scene. You all know what apophatic knowledge is? Apophatic contemplation is the contemplation of the mystics. It's the mystics leaving this world to have some experience of those things that can't be known. So apophatic knowledge is a kind of knowledge that, that makes us aware of what we don't know, the apophatic knowledge of God. We can only know God through negations by what we can't say about it. So if you take away the music of the spheres, we're left in an ap apophatic condition. It, there's more going on that nobody knows. Evil is at work. And what we're watching in the last three acts is what Iago does with everybody and the way he uses his mind. And he appeals to everybody's mind. He, he insinuates these things. He, uh, Othello goes, thought, thought, thought. It had been better if I'd not known. He's working on people's intellects. Venice is the, the center of the Renaissance. The intellectual Renaissance spread from Rome west across the country. And it's the beginning of the modern world. And here at the center of Shakespeare is saying, here's the modern world. It is preoccupied with its intellect. It claims to be smart. And it couldn't be more susceptible to evil. There's nobody who escapes. You know, remember I asked you, why Iago? And signs. Remember I said, Othello wants to be convinced and he's convinced. What kind of proof is that? And it's interesting, when, when Iago sets up the play, remember he says, watch Cassio because you'll see him 
that in a way that will convince you that he's Desdemona's lover. And then Bianca comes in and Othello interprets everything according to the way Iago is predisposed. Think about the way teachers or critics predispose people today to read a certain way. And people are convinced that's the way it is. In one sense, you can say the play's about reading. There's nothing that Othello reads well. And who's it, who's it working it? Iago's convincing everybody that this is the way things are. What's his purpose in life? I am not that I am. His whole purpose in life is to take being, away, the goodness of things, and turn it into something it's not. Iago, Othello's last line, I mean, sorry, Desdemona's last line, um, when, when she and Amelia are together, she, she, when, when they're talking about whether or not they would do that deed, it's incredible. She says, this is act four, line, uh, scene three, the very end. Good night, good night, God, God me such usage sin, not to pick bad from bad, but by bad amend. She's the opposite of Iago. Iago will take everything and make it worse. She deals with bad things and wants to bring a goodness out of them. But she's been too innocent all along. I mean, every, everybody in the play. So in terms of our catechism purpose, where do we find Christ? Is he here? Is there something prophetic about this? Last question. One question. Wait, wait. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, it's just relative to what you said. So, so how, how is it that Iago is so successful in his endeavor? Is it because of the insecurity that ultimately constitutes this city that's believing that it's self-sustained? I think that's, I think I didn't do this well enough. Why signs? Wait, let me go back to this. We know, we know this is good, I'm glad you asked. Um, we know from Merchant of Venice, that reason can be used well. Of course it doesn't. She's been educated well. I mean, Aristotle and her sense of the, end, the real ends of justice, the ends of the law. She helps bring that about. She does that through her use of reason. So we know that Shakespeare isn't cynical. He, he sees that there is a good reason. So the question is, in, in Venice, in Venice, ask the question again. Go ahead. Well, uh, because uh, in, in some way, Portia is not at the center of Venice, right? She's often... But she comes into the center to accomplish this. But, but she hasn't necessarily grown up in yes. that city yes. where it, it's all built on that yes. self-sufficiency. So she's maybe not as insecure or whatever the whatever the reason is no. that the people who live there yes. constantly yes. are. So therefore she's able to Good. see what they're unable to see. Yes. So let me, let me try to answer it now with that out. Go back to the city, St. Augustine, that the city presents itself as being self-sufficient. The reason is self-sufficient. One of the things you can say about reason, and we can see it here exactly as the way you've described it, and we'll see it in Winter's Tale, in spades. If reason's left to itself, it had, it's incapable of, of dealing with evil because evil is a supernatural power, if I can put it that way, if it's demonic. So if you live in a world that's sufficient, the way Brabantio says, this isn't, you know, um, remember that passage where he says, if the devil told you to worship God, you wouldn't, um, because the devil is clever. Reason is sufficient to do natural things. 
but it's in its weakness, in its limitations, it's capable of undoing itself. Somebody can commit suicide and give a reason for doing it. So reason by itself is not capable of dealing with evil. That's what we're watching in the play. And the, the, the great danger for Venetians is because they don't deal with it, they're more susceptible to it. Yeah. Now, we're, I mean, we'll see this more clearly in winter. Introduce faith, because reason can do an awful lot. We see that in Merchant of Venice. But we also know that reason by itself can destroy itself. People can, they can use reason to kill, abort, suicide. So the question is, can, can reason actually fulfill its end without faith, without a supernatural power? And what Shakespeare's showing us in this play is that it can't. And we're seeing the effects of it. This is the rational regime, the unreal regime, the, re the regime that bases itself on capital, the head, and is undone by it. Now quick, because I, I can't, they capture Iago, they bring him in, it all, everything comes out, they leave to get Iago, Othello's left by himself, he threatens Graziano, Brabantio's brother, who cowers, then they bring him back and Othello tries to kill him and he can't kill him. At the end of this play, evil's still alive, they're going to take him back to Venice, and we can't forget that. But Othello says this at the very end, soft you, a word or two before you go, I have done the state some service and they know it, no more of that, I pray you in your letters, when you shall see these unlucky deeds relate, speak of me as I am, nothing extenuate, nor set down aught in malice, not in out malice, then you must speak of one that loved not too wisely but too well, of one not easily jealous, but being wrought, perplexed in the extreme, of one whose hand, like the base Judean, threw a pearl away. Who's the base Judean that threw a pearl away? Judas. Hmm? Judas. Judas. Threw a pearl away, richer than all his tribe, of one whose subdued eyes, albeit unusual, to the melting mood, dropped tears as fast as the Arabian trees, their medicinal gum set you down this and say besides that in Aleppo once where a malignant and turban Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state, I took him, that is I took that turban himself, I took him by the throat that circum, because remember the Jews and the Islamic under the law were circumcised. So he's talking about a Turk. A turban Turk beat a Venetian and introduced the state I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him, thus he kills himself. Now here's my last two questions. How do we understand this act? Is this suicide an act of despair? Um, is this something we should look at in a negative light? Or is it something else? And where do we find Christ? Is he here or not? Maybe we should stop here. This might be a good place to stop. Can I offer a thought? Everybody's quiet. Suzanne and I, when we went to bed last night, I was asking her how she looked at this, and she didn't have kind words for Othello. 
when she woke up this morning, she did an amazing thing. She said, said, I love this end, and I, you know, but um, she said she found it easier to find Christ in Portia because she's so good. But if the question is, is Christ present in our broken condition where we're wounded and, you know, under the tormenting, the, the twisting manipulations of something, somebody like Iago, is he there? So the question for me is, if, um, is there something noble in him? And when he says, don't extenuate anything, stop and think about this for a minute. If they take Othello back to Venice, knowing what we know about Venice, what are they going to do in a court of law with him? By the way, here's some, here's some of the things I've been growing up. I've been hearing these things since I was younger, teaching this. If he'd only done this with her, if Amelia had only done this, and why didn't she do this? And my response to that is, that's Venetian. It's attempting to explain everything in terms of that practical Venetian reason. I think Shakespeare's showing there is a spiritual, like Dante, there's a spiritual evil here at work far greater than reason can get to. And it's worked on this extraordinary figure who, who gets driven to this point, who kills the, the thing he loved most in the world. And now he takes his life. So how do we look at this? If he goes back to the Venetian world, knowing what we know about Venice, what will happen in a court of law? Find him guilty. Why? If you, if you look at it from that rational world, he, he's basically been undone yeah. by Iago. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of like that Cleos thing. I mean, he did the honorable thing, right? Oh, yeah. To the extent that he knew it. Yeah. Or, or, and even transcendent. I mean, the, is there a lot? It's hard. For, I mean, if I saw him before Christ reckoning, does Christ said, does, what an awful thing you did? Or does he, remember Christ's last word. This was Father's homily. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the last words were, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he says to the sinner, this night, this night I shall see you in paradise. Father's last words were, where can you go for forgiveness like that? Is this just that ancient honor code? Because remember, in the middle of the play, it says, no more canons, no more this. I am no longer a part of I wanted to, I couldn't find the passage, but he says, the open canons and the problems, no longer my world. That, that he recognizes at that moment. He can no longer identify himself sufficient, completely with the world of honor. There's no question that honor is a part of what he does. The question for me is, is there something transcendent because he put out the light, this, this flaming minister, his language is the language of sacredness, heavenly things, holy things. Is there something, he knows, he, I think he knows if he goes back to Venice, justice will never answer the crime that he's committed. It's the only thing that he can do to bring justice, and my, I, it's hard for me not to see Christ's mercy in this act, that he's, he's, he's taken it on himself finally, the way Desdemona did, that it's the only way to answer it. So either either this is a despairing act, and I'm going to throw it out to you guys, or Shakespeare, because remember in The Tragic Hero, there's a recognition. Shakespeare is a Christian tragic writer. He doesn't belong with the pagans. Is he, is he helping us to see something about the nature of this act that Venetians would not see? And we're going to be presented with that problem here. We're going to be presented with, again with um, Hamlet.
So what it, again, what is poetry showing us? Where's Christ? How do we look at, how do we look at justice? We saw justice realized in Merchant of Venice with Portia, who comes from a world outside. Othello comes from a world outside. He's undone by it. He becomes a Christian. He loves like a Christian. I mean, oh, my soul's joy. This is, I mean, you just can't call that a naturalistic love, what he feels for her. But he kills her. So what's the answer to that? What Shakespeare's showing us? Let me just leave, leave us all there. Let's, let's stop. Um, you guys all have a good Thanksgiving. A really good Thanksgiving. Um, um, didn't, didn't we have a vote last time? Marcy. 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 Didn't we have a vote last time? That anybody who volunteered to bring food one week had to bring it the next? Wait, 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 everybody look here. Here's the word. Don't forget this word over, over, oops, over Thanksgiving. This is the word. Here's the word. Rascal, Pornero, Panero. Yeah, sir. Thank you for the paper. There's the extra. Oh, okay. Did you borrow this? You didn't buy it. Huh? Okay. I have mine at home. Okay. Yeah, I bought it. You know what? I was four years old. You guys all have a good Thanksgiving. Of course you do. But yeah. Yeah. For sure. To keep them. Yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. If you, yeah, if you're going to use the cave, it's a perfect. You want the rest of the Here.